0: It was my first day of school, and I was excited, as many of you were, I presume, on your first day of school, my very first day of school. I was excited about meeting the new kids that were going to be in my class, finding my desk, meeting my teacher, uh, talking to my friends, learning new things. I remember going up the steps to the schoolhouse, which was my church, and making my way up the front steps, and my mom was holding my hand, and I saw the big double doors at the top of the stairway, and that's the last thing I remember. I remember. So what? it was a small private school, and so I was in a classroom. I'm talking about meeting all of my friends. That classroom had maybe 10 kids in that class, and it wasn't just in that class. It was in my grade for the school, a very small school. And so what happens in a very small school like that, as I am going into the school, there were some middle school boys, and middle school boys are just the worst people On the planet, because that middle school boy was chasing the other middle school boy around in the foyer and he came running out the door to get away from his buddy and hit me square in the face and knocked me out cold. Day one, kindergarten, welcome to school. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm glad you decided to join us here this morning. If you're watching online, we're glad to have you here this morning as we begin our new year together, 2022 uh, with us. And, and the reality is, is I may be a little bit biased, but why wouldn't we want to come together to start our year together, to start our time together by gathering around God's words. So we're so glad that you chose to be with us this morning. It's a great way to start the new year. That may not have been the best way for me to start my school career, but this would be a good way for us to start our time together. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I'm in the New International Version. That's what's in the pews in front of you. If you're at home or if you're here, you want to be able to find your way on a digital device. I'll be in the New International Version, and today we'll be in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. Today we are beginning a new sermon series, a new sermon series called To the Cross, because those of you keeping track and keeping score out there, we're about 13 weeks away now from Easter, and so this sermon series is going to take us towards Easter, and only a few days into the new year, you may feel like maybe I did that morning, that first day of school, we're only a few days in, it's only the ninth day of the year, and you've already been knocked back on your backside to start the year. Well, don't lose heart. There is hope. There is always, always hope. And if we are going to share a message of hope, then we have to begin with where hope actually begins in the person himself of Jesus Christ. And so today's sermon title, as you can see it on the screen, is First Things First. So the first question that is asked in the New Testament, we read the New Testament narrative, we we begin with, with Matthew and we see the Matthews begats and we hear all the different lineage that is given to this Christ child that is going to be born. But the first question that we get in this New Testament is this question, where is he? That's the first question. That is being asked. The Magi are asking that question in Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one that has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So, They are coming to worship. They say, where is he? Where is the one that we've heard about? Where does he reside? Verse 3, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 says this. When King Herod, and I'm going to do something this morning. I want you to notice that this is King Herod the Great. So King Herod heard that he was disturbed, heard this and he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. This is the way that we begin the New Testament. It's a familiar passage. We just finished our Christmas season and many of the sermons we went back to this passage. But this passage is asking the question, where is he? And even more specifically, where is the one? And it disturbs King Herod. And it throws King Herod off because he is waiting for, they say, the king of The Jews. And as we've discussed before, that kind of crowds Herod's space. He's concerned about what this could mean. Where is he? He says. And he tells the Magi to come back. He says, After you meet with him, after you find him, come and tell me where he is. I want to find him. And he lies through his seat and says, I want to worship him. As well But we know from history. We know from the rest of the book of Matthew that he, what he tried to do is eliminate any other contenders for the throne. and all the young boys, two years and under, were murdered in that area. So he wanted to know where is he. We have to answer that question differently. First things first that we have to come to. If we're going to start the new year together, first things first. The first thing we got to talk about, where is he? Well, we need to know this. Here's our answer to that question. He is near. He is near. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill What the Lord had said through the prophets, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is near. God has come close. And so when Herod is out looking, King Herod the Great is out looking for this child, this Messiah. He's looking in the neighborhoods because he's been told that he is close by. He is near. We have to begin there. That's our first things first. got to come to that point and realize that God is near. So the passage that we just read from Matthew chapter 16 has the same connotation of what's going on there as well. Because in Matthew chapter 16, we realize that God is near and his name is Jesus. Verse 13 says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, as he is coming into that region, we have to keep in our mind, understand where is he? He is near. He is coming close. So this morning, I'm going to talk about a number of Herods that we have in the New Testament. And it can be confusing for us, but actually it helps us to see this bigger picture of what is being laid out. Most of us have understood who Herod the Great is because he's the Herod from the Christmas narrative. But if I'll put up a slide here to be able to see kind of how Herod connects all the dots here. Here's all the family of Herod. Herod the Great has all of these wives... And as we move through today's sermon, you are going to see the different Herods that are involved. So this is one of his sons, Herod Philip is one of his sons. And he is responsible for this area that we are looking at today, this area of Caesarea Philippi. That's why it's named that, Caesarea Philippi. So this is Herod's son. If you remember, when Jesus is taken away by his Parents and taken to Egypt for safety because all of these two year old boys and younger were going to be killed. He's taken away, and they said, You can come back after Herod the Great, the guy on top, after he dies, you can come back. And so his kingdom has been divided up into many different children, almost all of them taking the name Herod. So, who I'm talking about here is Herod Philip in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Let me show you the next slide. So this area of Caesarea Philippi, you see there at the top Mount Hermon. So this is a big mountain and it oversees much of the area. Uh, at the bottom of that river valley, as you see, kind of goes down through. The, you see the different deep cut of the water that's coming through. These waters at the top of this area, all of these waters will make their way into the Jordan. They'll make their way into the Jordan River, which is much of the area of Galilee and all that we read in the New Testament. This is kind of the beginnings Of that. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and at the base there, this Caesarea Philippi. This is the region that Herod Philip was responsible for. And because of its water supply, it's a very fertile area. You can see even in this image of all of these green and attractive areas uh, for, for raising crops and for building shelters and homes. But what also is here, because it is a water source, uh, different religions of the day, different pagan religions of the day, always went back to the source of the water and they would treat that source as if there was a god there that was releasing that source of water to the region, And so this is a dangerous area because what happens here also is this tug back and forth for control of the water source. And so during the Hellenistic and Roman periods, there's all these battles that happen for this very area. Just a few miles away from here is a waterfall. I want to show you a picture over here. So this is a water. You can see the tremendous amount of water that is coming through. This is the Benias waterfall, and it's thirty feet high. And so there's this huge cavern of water, and there's these two streams that come together there. And this is all part of Caesarea Philippi, where these streams come together and all of the different water sources come together. This has been invaded many times during the Roman period, the Hellenistic period. At one point, Syria even attempted to come in and prevent these waters from flowing into the rest of Israel so that they could control that water source and send it in a different way. Throughout biblical history, let me show you the next picture because there's all these different things that happen, so these water sources are then being driven. So this is a modern day picture. You can see that there's this pathway that goes through, but these are all the channels that water used to come through and kind of be sent and diverted different ways. And so it is not just in Jesus' time, but actually you can go all the way back into Old Testament times that actually they worshipped the god Baal here at this location that we read in Scripture as Caesarea Philippi. The place was called Baal Hermon during that time period, during the Old Testament time. And so it became this place where they worshipped Baal, because again, the water source meant that that there must be a god who was there in charge of it. And then over time, this site later becomes known as Panias, after the Greek god Pan. If you know that one, he's the one that uh, is a Greek god who looks like a goat and he has a, a flute that he plays. And, and the idea of, of this uh, god is that he, he creates a tremendous amount of fear in his people. So the word panic comes from that god, often depicted playing the flute. Let's go to our next slide here. During this Time period that Jesus was walking the earth, this temple area was built there. And so there's these remains, this is again, modern day, these remains, you can see how this temple was built there because the water source was so great and because there was such a, an attraction to the area, they started to worship their gods there. So this was the temple for uh, Pan there, the god Paneus, uh this guy who was uh, bringing everyone uh, together but also doing it in fear and control. It was all open uh, worship space for this god Pan. And just to the left of that picture, you can see a dark space, uh, is a cave where most of the water source came. Caesar Augustus later gave the city to Herod the Great, uh, and that's where it began a place that they would worship there as well. Would you go to the next slide for us? All along the walls of this huge space, these huge stones, there's these carvings, And they would take, because again, they thought that these were gods that would give them this water source was going to change their lives and was going to be able to be a place of worship. There was all these different places. They would place gods. They would carve out a space. uh, The idea of graven images. They would make an image. They'd carve a space. And then they would put that image up there on the wall, and they would worship it one after another after another. Again, this is a modern-day picture. All these years later, you can still go, and you can see how it was carved out for all of these gods to be worshipped there in the space of the pan temple in the space there and they're all uh, pulled away and this is where all the deity was supposedly supposed to be and, and people would bring their coins and they would throw their coins in the pool there in front of these places and if you were more wealthy you might even be able to get your name carved next to the idol or the god of your choice there. So actually there are uh, names that are often engraved around it, naming the god and naming the person who gave the money to put that space there. Kind of sounds like something we've heard of before. And then this cave off to the side, this is the Grotto of Pan, it's called. One more slide. The Grotto of Pan, if you look there in the back, that dark cave Again, this is a modern day picture, but at one point, they say that there was a earthquake in the late 1800s and that changed diverted the water source. But up until that point, that dark space in the center is where water would actually come out of the ground through the mouth of that cave is where water would be streaming out enough water to to show the whole area and be able to fill all of the sea of galleys all coming out for the most part out of this One cave. That was the water source. Now, water is kind of coming around that and kind of coming out of different places there in the rock. But that was where the spring was, where the water source would be. And so that was the source, the center of pagan worship. And because they're in the 3rd century, because all before Christ they were starting to worship this, uh, this goat god that has the flute, that they would actually go and offer sacrifices there at that cave. And they would offer goats as sacrifices. And the way they knew that he was happy with them is they would take their goat and they would throw it into the pool. And if it sank, that meant that the god Pan accepted their offering. If it floated, you were in trouble. You were in trouble trouble. I assume, and as I was reading about it, there were different ways that they made darn sure that their goat, when they threw it in, that it sunk, and it sunk like a rock. Uh, They would do all kinds of things to make sure that they would be honored, that they would be cared for by these different gods. Now, there's all these different gods, all these different idol worships, all these different things that are going on here at Caesarea Philippi. First things first, where is he? Where is Jesus? Where is the Messiah? He is near. The reason why it's important, this setting, this context as to where we read this passage is because Jesus is in the middle of all of this. And it was part of why the religious Pharisees of the day were really upset with him. Because he was supposed to be in the temple if he was the leader that he says that he was. He was supposed to be removed from the normal people, from the filth of the earth. But that's not the God that we serve. No, Jesus the Messiah says, no, I have come. I've moved into the neighborhood. I am accessible. I am here. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. And so up to this point, he has made himself available to the masses. He has been preaching and teaching for all to see but he takes his disciples here to help them know and help them realize. He has just sent them out into different communities so that they would be able to preach and teach the gospel. It was a testing season for them, but he is going to bring them here. And he is going to make sure that they understand the mission that lies before them. The responsibility that was there. And it was always going to be to be in the filth, to be in the pagan culture, to be part of that so that it could be transformed with the gospel. That's why he is here. That's why this is important. Some of you grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, like I did. And there was a show, a sitcom that was famous to all of us. We all watched all of the episodes, a sitcom called Friends. And there is one episode, if I say one word, most of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. If I say the word pivot, there's a ridiculous episode where the three guys on the show are trying to carry a couch up a stairwell. And one of the guys, Ross Gemmer, makes his way up the stairwell and he can't turn. He's pinned up against the wall and he keeps telling the other guys, pivot, pivot. And he's trying to get them to turn. He's trying to go up the steps. That's not important to today's message, but here's the point. There is a pivot that happens right here in Matthew chapter 16. That is why we are starting our sermon series here. Because up until this point, Jesus has been caring for the masses. Jesus has been healing. He has been talking to many, many, many people. But now he is going to turn and focus himself towards the cross. There is a pivot in his ministry. There is a pivot in the book of Matthew. There is something different going on here. Matthew has been building the case that he is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one that we've been waiting for and now there's something important that he is going to do. There's a pivot. There's a turn. Something is going to happen. So we need to be certain that we know and we understand. First things first, where is he? Well, he's in the mess. First things first, Who is he? Who is this Jesus? Continuing in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? He uses this term, this Son of Man. It comes up multiple times in the book of Matthew. Actually, it comes up only a handful of times in the other gospels. But the book of Matthew says this over 30 times. Uses this phrase, son of man. Matthew was listening. He picked up every time that Jesus said, I'm going to write that down. Why does he keep calling himself the son of man? Because he wants to be accessible. He wants to be in the filth with humankind. He wants them to know that he is available. He is here. He is tangible. He's accessible. So who do people say, he says, that the son of man is? And they replied. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. First things first. If we're going to start our year correctly here, who is he? Who is Jesus? Let me bring you back to the slide on Herod and his whole family. So we've looked at Herod the Great. We looked at Herod Philip, who is the naming after Caesarea Philippi. Hang on right over there and you'll see Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas is an important character for us to pay attention to in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 14 we read Matthew chapter 14 just a couple of pages back in your Bible Matthew chapter 14 verse 1 it says Herod the Tetrarch and I've given you the brackets this is Herod Antipas heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants this must be John the Baptist he has risen from the dead that is why the miraculous powers are at work with him When Herod Antipas looks out and he sees all the things that Jesus is doing, he sees him healing, he sees the lame walk, he sees the blind able to see. He says, this must be John the Baptist. That doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 3. Here's what's happened to John the Baptist. Now Herod Antipas had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because Herodias... His brother Philip's wife. Remember the diagram? His brother Philip was on the other side of the diagram. This was Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so he had corrected him. John the Baptist got in his face and said, this is not correct. You want to call yourself, and he tried to call himself a Jewish follower. You want to call yourself, it is not lawful for you to have her. So verse 5, Herod decides he's going to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered John to be a prophet. And so he puts him in jail. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised to give her with an oath whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother. I'm giving you the brackets here so you know who she is. Prompted by her mother. Verse 8. Herodias His brother Philip's wife, that's the mother here that's being talked about. So this is Philip's wife, Herodias, uh, prompted by her mother. She said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king, Herod Antipas, was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request would be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. John the Baptist has been beheaded in the prison because he has spoke up against Herod the Great, against the kingdom, against authority, against the monarchy, against the imperial majesty. He has put something up there and he has turned his face against him and he finds himself beheaded. First things first, when we're talking about Jesus, who is he? If we look at the Luke account of the gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 7, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, same Herod, heard all that was done. He was very perplexed because it was said by some that John was risen from the dead. He's nervous. He's heard that he's a prophet. He has had him beheaded. And now he looks out and there's this guy, Jesus, doing miracles and doing incredible things. And this is what they're saying about him. Verse 8, by some. They said that Elijah had appeared, and by others, that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this, he says, about whom I hear such things? First things first, where is he? Second thing, who is he? He's God. He is God. Verse 13. Of Matthew chapter 14. This is what happens right after we get the account that John the Baptist has been killed. When Jesus heard of what happened, he withdrew to a brook privately to a solitary place. So he's going to grieve. He's going to take a step back. This is his cousin Hearing of this, however, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, it says in verse 19. Taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up in heaven, he gave thanks, he broke the loaves, and what happens? They all eat and are satisfied. First things first, we need to get this out of the way. We need to know who is he? He is God. And multiple examples Matthew gives us. Five loaves, two fish. Seven loaves. Two fish walking on water. The wind and the waves obey him. And they all turn around. They all keep looking back and said, who is he? He is God. He is God. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist." Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or the prophets. They're just regurgitating what the word on the street is. They're sharing with what they have heard, what the people are talking about, what the king himself is saying in his private chambers. This is what they have heard, who he is. First things first, if we're going to start our year here together, if we're going to dive into this passage, we need to ask ourselves this question. Where are you? where are you? This is a question that begins the Old Testament. It's the first question that God asks in the book of Genesis. He is walking through the garden. Sin has occurred. The devil has tempted Adam and Eve. And Jesus, God, is walking through the garden. He asks the question, where are you? Not because he can't find them, not because he's blind and he can't see them, but he needs to know, where do you stand? When you go into a mall, when you go into a college campus, you see there's a big map, there's a big kiosk that tells you about all the different buildings on the campus. But what you'll also find on that is a dot that says, you are here. First things first, we need to define, where are you? And it's the very thing that happens here in the New Testament, here in Caesarea Philippi. Verse 15, he says, but what about you? He asks. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are the one we have been waiting for and you are standing right here in front of us. We see you. We've been with you. We know that you are the one. Verse 18. Jesus responds, I tell you that you are Peter. Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, is what he says there to Peter. Now again, it's important that they are in Caesarea Philippi for this to make sense. Because here they are, they're in the center of idol worship. They are looking into the cave where the water source comes out that is supposed to be the source of all life for all of these idol worshipers. Even going back into Old Testament times, this is an important thing that he is saying there. Because Baal, the idol worship that they worshiped with Baal, apparently he would take a winter vacation like some of you do and you decide to drive to Florida. He decides to drive to hell, Hades, the underworld. Baal would disappear every winter, they would say, and he would go into the underworld because it was warmer there. He would go into the underworld and cause trouble, cause strife, and that's why you didn't want to wake him because he would literally, supposedly, be coming out of this cave. And so when Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it, it's important that they are in this place, at this location, when he says those words. Probably another sermon for another day, but there are three things that Jesus says in response to this declaration. The Catholic Church takes a look at this and they say, we want to make Peter the first pope because it says, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And so they say that's why Peter is so important. He's the first pope, he's the first person. But we as Protestants, as Evangelicals, as Baptists, as we look at this pastor say, no, it's on his declaration of what he has said. That's what he is going to build the church on. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Now that's something to build the church on. And so his response, what he looks back, he says, upon that declaration, your declaration of faith, here's three things that I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to give you a new identity, Peter. Because from now on, you are going to be the one who is going to be the leader of our disciples. I'm going to build my church. And I'm going to use you, the 12 disciples. I'm going to use you specifically, Peter. And we see that he does that. In the book of Acts, we see that he uses Peter to begin the church that is reaching out to the Jews. We also see that he is building the church that's reaching out to the Gentiles. He is using Peter tremendously upon this declaration He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. What did Herod the Great say? He said, Where can I find him who has come to be the king of the Jews? In the entire Gospel of Matthew, the story is being played out, the the, the emphasis is being given that this is your king. And what is so different about King Jesus is that from this very moment, the pivot happens that he is giving the keys to the kingdom to the peasants. He's giving the keys to the kingdom to his followers. He's giving the keys to his kingdom to his disciples, to you and to me. And he says, I will build my church on this. First things first, where are you? where are you? Let me bring up Herod again. There's five Herods in the New Testament, so it's difficult for us to keep them all straight. But here's what happens. We've seen Herod the Great. We've seen Herod Philip. We've seen Herod Antipas. In the book of Acts, we meet someone called Herod Agrippa the First. Herod Agrippa the First. In Acts chapter 12, we read this. Herod a grip of the first is wearing his royal robes. He's sitting on his throne. He's delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And when we read this in Acts chapter 12, what has just happened is that Peter, guess who, Peter is in prison with Silas. And the gates of the jail have been thrown open and he walks out perfectly clean, perfectly whole, untouched. And Herod has no idea that this has happened. And yet he allows himself, after giving a speech, maybe it's the State of the Union Address, I don't know, after giving a speech, they all start throwing things at him, and they say, giving praise to God, this is a voice of a God, not a man. Next verse says, immediately, because Herod Agrippa did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, if you continue in the verse, it says the worms ate him there. Why does this happen? Because this Herod, this king, answered his question a little bit differently. When the question was asked, where are you? Where he was, was said, I must be equal with the king. I must be equal with the gods. And immediately he is struck down. First things first, where are you? Let's go back to our Agrippa slide. This is Herod Agrippa II. So now his dad in Acts chapter 12 is knocked off. The angel wipes out Herod Agrippa I. He becomes king. Uh, Herod Agrippa II becomes king at a very young age. Why? Because God struck down his father. That's why. And so later in Acts chapter 25, guess who? It's Paul now who is being pulled in front of all of the different leaders of the day because he's been preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 27, says this. King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, says, do you believe in the prophets? And he sticks this in there and says, I know that you do. Why? Because he knows the history. He knows that Herod Agrippa II's father was killed because he was disobedient and disillusioned to who God really is. He says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do, he says. And Agrippa said to Paul, this is after Paul has told his whole story about the, uh, of how he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says, Agrippa, to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? This movement that I'm seeing, this this church that is growing, you Jews that are beginning to worship Jesus, the Gentiles are beginning to come in because he's been made accessible to all. 29, Paul replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who would be listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. He holds up his chains. He said, I would have everyone who is listening to my voice Even you, King Herod Agrippa, that you would come to a faith in Jesus Christ. You would come to a faith in Jesus Christ because you understand and know. You start first things first. You know who he is. As the band comes up this morning, this is our desire, my desire in this message this morning as we start our new year together. First things first. These principles, these ideas will drive what happens in your life the rest of this year, the rest of next year, the rest of your life, if you understand. Where is he? He's here, friends. God did not spin the earth into orbit and then walk away and hope that everything turns out all right. No, he came here, God with us. And he didn't come here, God, with us just to be in the temple, just to be away from everyone in some type of holy space. No, he wanted to get in the dirt and in the filth. He wanted to be here with us. And to go back to the story that I began with this morning, some of you may have started the year, nine days into the year, and knocked down already, sitting on your backside. We see in Scripture that God is a heavenly Father who reaches down again and again and again picks us up suffer the little children to come to me he says let me help you up we have the rest of the year to go still he says I'm here and I am with you where is he? he is here who is he? he is God you may be here this morning and you have heard this multiple times that was my story I've shared this with you before, but as a teenager, I'd grown up in the church. I'd accepted giving my my life to Christ at seven or eight years old. But as a teenager, I met this cute girl in high school, told her about Jesus, invited her to church. And she asked me this question when I told her, no, we probably can't go on a date because you're not a Christian. She said, oh, I understand that. I've got other friends whose parents are Christians too, and they won't allow it. And it was as if this very passage that I'm speaking on this morning was in my face, because it said, that's what they say about him. What do you say? Where do you stand? Who is he for you? Where are you on this one? And in that moment, as a 15-year-old kid, I having to figure it out, I had to be able to come to my own collection, collect my thoughts, to be able to say, that is my parents' faith, but for me, as Peter had to do, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And because of that, I'm going to live my life accordingly. Where are you? Do you believe? Herod Agrippa, the King Herod, Who has the power with a snap of his fingers to kill whoever he wants at any time he wants? Paul looks him in the eye and he says, I want you to believe in Jesus too. I want you to believe in him too. Perhaps today is the day for you, because I would not want any one of you watching online in this room, any of you certainly under the the leadership of our church, to come and go and miss this point. Do you believe? Do you know who He is? Do you know that He is here and He's available and He is here for you, because He is God, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. Perhaps today is today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me pray for you this morning. Dear Lord, as we've opened your word this morning, it is very clear what Peter's response was. Because of the things that he had seen, the things that he had experienced, the things that you had taught, the things that he had been a part of, the way that you had used him. Lord, he denies you later, but still you choose to pick him up and use him. So it's very clear to us this morning how Peter answered this question. But it's much less clear. It is much less obvious how each individual person in this room may answer this question. And so just like God, you came into the garden and you asked, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Lord, may you come into our hearts here this morning and, and ask in a similar way. Lord, you know But there's something about that prompting. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be prompting this morning, asking that question, where are you? Where are you? And if there would be one or two or many more, Lord, that would start this year, start 2022, with a choice to break through where they've been and be able to say, I want to be able to answer this question. First things first, I want to start this way by saying, you are the Christ. We read in Scripture, Lord, that you as the Christ went to the cross as a substitute for my sins and for the sins of every person in this room. Went there, sinless, innocent, and yet died on the cross for us to make eternal life available to each and every one of us. To as many as received him, to them he called the sons of God. I pray, Lord, that you would allow someone this morning With a simple prayer, Lord, I believe in you. You are the Christ. That we would welcome another son, another daughter into the family of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.